The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. to Positive Talk Radio. It's a nice day today, and I get to be um, honored with a beautiful young woman who is in a beautiful place, uh, which would be Maui, Hawaii, I do believe. And she is with us today because she's got something that is that she's part of a program and part of a, a company, or is it? I'm well. We'll get into that. It's called Biomimicry. And it's the Biomimicry Institute, and it is basically, well, you know, I'm going to ask her because she knows a hell of a lot more about it than I do. So, so uh, Alexa Morey, welcome to the show. How are you? Kevin, thank you so much for having me. I am doing pretty well, I must say, being here with you today and your amazing audience of, of listeners here. I love your theme. It is all about what biomimicry is based on. So I'm excited to dig in with you. Absolutely. So what is biomimicry? Great question. That's a great place to start. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I I must say, I get asked a lot where what is biomimicry, what is it about? Uh Honestly, even the, the word can trip up people. But basically what we're talking about here is studying nature and replicating the amazing strategies that have evolved over millennia here that could inform the way that we design our world so that ultimately we can create conditions conducive to life. And so basically what we're talking about here is asking nature, how would nature solve for a particular problem? How does the ecosystem that we live in function and how can we create behavior that supports that kind of functioning? It, it's actually, it's not the, the idea of asking nature for these kinds of guidance and this mentorship, this support, this isn't new. This is ha have been done for a long time with humans. Um, you could look at da Vinci as having some of the original drawings, at least that we found, but in indigenous cultures, this is something that is not foreign to the way that humans have looked at their place and found value and respect for living in it. But the coin term of biomimicry as a scientific methodology, a framework uh, for going through certain design practices that was originally written about in the book by Janine Venice in 1997. And then ultimately now it's, you know, 25 years later since the book was published and we are at a thriving organization called the Biomimicry Institute where we get to spread the education and the practice internationally through many different kinds of initiatives. When we look at basically mimicking nature, 
to live our lives more effectively and act actually in in concert with the planet rather than in conflict with the planet how do we go about doing all of that because it's i mean that seems to me to be a really big task it is it is but at the same time it's really a shift in perspective because when we look at our context we're we're living on planet earth this is how life has evolved. This is how us humans have been able to communicate virtually in this world. Somehow we got to a place where we're miles away. We can talk like this. This The ways that we've been able to adapt to our environment has been a building blocks of evolution. And so there's different levels of how we can incorporate this kind of thinking into our worlds. Everything from our personal behaviors of just learning about our environment, learning about our neighborhoods, the, the kinds of climate that we live in, and even the choices that we have available to us as consumers, for example. You know, where are you sourcing your food? Is it halfway around the world? Can you get something that is more local and you know, supporting the, the people that are in your community? all the way to industry and design, to looking at how, where are you placing that manufacturing plant? What kind of materials are you using this sourcing? There is the design thinking framework that you can basically apply to any problem, but from a bigger picture perspective, you're really trying to step back and say, what is the effect I have on this behavior that I'm about to choose? And how would nature do it effectively? And so you can ask certain types of design questions that get really granular, or you can step back and say, you know, how would uh, the fashion industry function if it worked like an ecosystem and look at the different kinds of players and the parts that come together? And so it's, it is a big challenge to approach, but really what we're talking about is looking at all the different mini challenges within this larger challenge to think that there's one answer for everything and solving like climate change, for example, it's impossible. It's, there are so many different things that have to be done. And the beautiful thing about that is there's so many opportunities for humans to get involved because it applies to anything that they're interested in and just looking at the world through this kind of regenerative lens. And for me, that actually gives me a lot of hope because it means that not only there are a lot of people that can do work toward making progress, but it gives me a, an avenue, a pathway to actually choose my influence and be able to say, this is what I have an effect over and this is what I can realistically accomplish and still be doing better in the world because I'm aware of my effects. You know, it's interesting because... In all reality, uh, the industrial age started in the mid-1800s. So it's been the last really 200 years, a little bit shy of 200 years, where we have changed the dynamic of the earth because of the types of things that, that we've wanted to do for convenience sake, mm -hmm. uh, make it easier for us. Uh, clothing uh, is, is a big polluter, um, you, you know, and... and uh, uh, plastics and all of the things that that when they were designed were designed to make our life easier um, but but now we've come to the place where we understand that some of the things that we thought 
we're going to make our life easier are going to make our life more difficult and it's going to make it harder for us to exist on the planet uh, even straws as an example that was a um an idea of uh, bringing something that would just make it easier to drink something but now we've got straws in landfills that are going to be around longer than your great 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 grandchildren are going to be around and it's and so we have got to make, make these changes because it's only been the last couple hundred years and it's really been the western society that has been there are many cultures still on this planet and you would know more than i but tell me are there many cultures on this planet that are still living in concert with the earth absolutely there there are many communities that still look at life this way now whether or not they're exposed to what traditional now modern society has shaped. That's different. But one of the things that you touched on, Kevin, that I think is really important is we're talking about unintended consequences here. Exactly. People wanted to have good design. It's not that they were necessarily malicious. Now, Granted, when research comes out and then there are still people producing certain things out of power and money, we'll put that aside for a moment. <laughs> and we're going to talk about how short-term effects versus long-term effects and the idea of scarcity versus abundance. And one of the very real issues that we're dealing with today is, you're right, we have transformed the chemistry that we're working, we're, we're working with materials now that weren't around a few hundred years ago. And one of the things I hear a lot in people trying to work in the sustainability movement is we need to go back, go back to how earth was, go back to this one. Like that's never going to happen. It's never, we're never, we're not trying to go back to how earth was. What we are trying to do is realize what we have right now in front of us. There is Yes, landfills full of waste that we can't get resources back. Just sorting, collecting alone is incredibly tiresome and materials have degraded in different ways. We have ocean plastic, literal islands of garbage. There are these massive problems that we have and it's not to be daunting to say that we can't get ourselves out of it. It's let's let go of trying to get back to anything that was Let's get let go of the concept of that we're trying to save the planet. Let's instead embrace a mindset that says, here are the problems that we have in front of us. Now let's do something about it. Given the context that we have now, we don't know what is going to happen 20 years from now. We don't know what the state of the earth is going to be despite some forecasting some predictions, we can use some basis of science to give us a platform to say that the alarms have been sounded, but we can also take a step in this moment and say, we're doing some things that have some consequences that are negative. There are solutions available right now that we can implement. We just have to get really creative about asking the right kinds of questions. And part of that is looking at the full effect of our behaviors rather than having a new design, let's say a, a building and a city, rather than just going ahead and doing the traditional uh, pathway that we've been having for many years now of an architect and um, construction managers and all of these designers working 
separate from each other at different stages, let's bring them all to the table in the beginning. Bring them a biologist to the table and bring a, a biomimicry um, practitioner to the table where they can translate these kinds of problems and see them before. It's part of the scoping phase. We're really trying to see like, what's our effect now? And then let's plan in the in the long term. So that way we don't have a building in, let's, let's say, um, San Francisco that is sinking. You know, there's things that are way, ways that we can avoid some of these problems because we have the knowledge now, we have the tools now, but it's a really hard concept for people to slow down and to say, before we're going to act, let's actually think about this in a very intentional way and then design. But it's a, that's a shift in thinking that we're trying to do here. You know, it's interesting when you said we can't go back in time and you're right. And nor should we. Because now we are, we went through the industrial age. We went through the 20th century. We came up with all of these products. We did not know what the long-term ramifications of these were. Now we're learning about them. Now we've got the science to be able to go and re-engineer some of these things that we've become really um, um, excited about having in our lives and uh, re-engineer them in a modern way using current scientific um, 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 abilities to be able to do it in a life-sustaining way rather than a life-defeating way. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And one of the things I do want to stress the importance of is it's, I'll, I'll say it's a little irritating sometimes <laughs> for me personally to see biomimicry used for something like cheetah fabric on a on a dress. I see that. I come, I see that as like, this is biomimetic. Big. So two key points here. Biomimicry is about function and it's about learning from the natural world and then replicating those strategies. That example of the cheetah, it's actually a, it's a behavior. It's a, um, it's a sentiment, a feeling of nature and it's actually called biophilia. And so there's this thing that happens when we are seeing nature um, patterns, flowers, different things in our world that we feel certain things. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not so good. That's not biomimicry. It's an aspect of it, but it's not quite what we're looking at here. So the other main point is just because you're learning from nature and mimicking, let's say a design strategy, doesn't make it necessarily biomimetic either because there are three essential elements that you must have when you're talking about biomimicry. The first, the first being that this is the emulate part. So it's like, this is a biological strategy. How does a cactus um, cool? And then replicating that functional strategy. The second element would be the reconnect element how we are acknowledging as humans, we are part of the natural world. And part of a design is to also introduce that kind of feeling. So it's part of the storytelling and saying that that cactus that you're learning from is part of this world that we share. But that the last pillar, this is the one that's really, really important when it comes to separating things like unintended consequences from the Wright brothers, for example, is ethos. It's our moral responsibility, our obligation to look at how we are interconnected with this world. Is this design actually creating conditions conducive to life? And I bring up the example of the Wright brothers because 
they learned from birds how to fly. And it wasn't just a few years later that we were using those in innovations for dropping bombs. That is not the intention of biomimicry. It is not for military use in the kind of combat sense that is creating unnecessary harm to humans. And I stress that because we can take a lot of wisdom from the natural world and translate it into design, but that doesn't mean that it's actually being regenerative for the earth. And that's what nature's all about. Nature rewards cooperation. It is about sustaining the ecosystem in a, in a striving way to have balance so that more life and more biodiversity can create these conditions that help more thrive. And so when we're using it for destructive purposes, that's not the intention. And so it's, it's important for us to get from the get-go. It is about looking at our ecosystem and contributing to it rather than trying to domesticate or destroy it. I want to remind everybody, in case you're not a history buff, and some people are not, in uh, Kitty Hawk in 1903 was where the Wright brothers for the first time took to the air. And they flew like a couple hundred feet. That's it. That's all they did. And they got off the ground and, and, and that led to the airplane, led to the jet, led to air pollution, led to a lot of different unintended consequences for us to do a better job at traveling and, and doing all that sort of thing. And so now we have to take it to the next level. Yes. Because it's not going to, it is not sustainable to do what we've been doing with dropping, because as an example, most of the food that we eat has got jet fuel in it. The water has jet fuel in it because of the number of jets that have flied over the skies and then the um, their exhaust that has, it's rained and it's gone into the, so we've got to change and not, not to not fly anymore. That's not, uh, and I know this isn't what you guys are, what you're saying. What you're saying is we have to do a better job of figuring out a way that that nature would handle that development so that it could be operated in a more sustainable, long-term way that our great-great-grandchildren can fly and, and it can be uh, healthy and it can be good for us. Is, is that kind of a good Yeah, example? absolutely. I mean, for, for like one, one example or one approach is so... Again, this is every problem has complex problems within it. Um, they call them wicked challenges for a reason. So let's say, for example, airplanes. They're very heavy. Do they have to be that heavy? What if we were able to save some fuel and make them more efficient by creating lighter, stronger composite materials? This is being done, actually. Um, it's so it's a, one of uh, the companies that ran through our Ray of Hope prize, which I'd be happy to, to chat a little bit about is Helicoid Industries. And so they mimicked the way that if you've ever seen a mantis shrimp, they're the beautiful rainbow colored uh, shrimp that they have these giant claws and the force of these claws that they're able to break apart their prey. And they say that the force of one punch from this claw is uh, the same as a 22 caliber gun. So like that impact 
But how does it not break its shell? How how does how can it hit this hard material? And so that's it's actually called it's a helicoid architecture. That is the way that the shell is designed. So they are replicating this architecture in composite materials to make them lighter and stronger, which can be used for planes or cars, for example. So that's just one way of approaching this using uh, biomimicry in a, in a way that is thoughtful and intentional. There's another thing that I wanted to, to talk to you about that, that I'm a real advocate of. And, I, I, you know, I'll be honest, I do nothing about it until really recently. But except in the, in the 70s and 80s, we used to buy it in like a little baggie and, and stuff. And it would be it was hemp. It was pot. And um, but that we have discovered and we are getting more and more that we're finding out that hemp has got an abundance of natural uses mm -hmm. that can be actually better for the planet and better for us than what we're using for manufactured cloth and, and even, even making houses mm -hmm. and chopping down trees and doing that. Is that, is that something that you guys would embrace or is that what biomimicry would, would think would be a good natural substance to use? That's a great question. So one of the challenges with hemp for quite some time is actually in, in part of the process for being able to make it usable for like different threads and things. And it's been fairly an unsustainable process for it until recently where a company actually um, it's called Renaissance Fibers, and they created a more sustainable approach using biomimetic principles of that degumming process. So basically making it more usable and they can use it in textile threads now. So yeah, absolutely. It's something that is a really good uh, material to be using and can be planted in ways that are regenerative, but it was really that process that needed to be overcome. So now it can be used a little bit more wide stream. And so, so yes, that's, that's something that when we, so one of the things that biomimicry is emulating the function, but that's not to say that it doesn't also use nature too. It's about the process or form or system that we're trying to look at. So for example, um, Biome is a company that is using mycelium to better make um, different kinds of products and even some um, bioremediation techniques. So the process is using the mycelium in a way that is not taking away from ecosystems and it's actually being able to build back better and it's done in a regenerative way. So one of the things that we talk about biomimicry is we don't need to reinvent the wheel. If nature is doing it better than we are, we can inform that practice, make sure that it's used in a way that, again, is not disrupting the ecosystem in which it's going to grow or that we're going to outsource and be able to supply the demand for and able to work in concert with using nature and also um, being able to apply it in ways that are regenerative. This is different from, let's say, there's another, there's a company called Werewolf, for example. They found that the protein used in a certain type of coral called a discosoma and it's vibrant like this this coral is just 
bright reds and just very vibrant colors. So they found out how to mimic the compounds of the protein to then re re recreate it in the lab. And now they're using it to make uh, textiles that are non-toxic. They don't have colors or dyes that are going to be harmful for when you wash your clothes ultimately in the washing machine and when you're wearing them on your body. And so that's the difference between replicating that actual protein versus using the protein itself. And so there's ways to look at how it all works. Cause again, there's, there's never going to be something that is so biomimetic in fashion that, or in by fashion, meaning mechanism, not necessarily fashion industry, uh, that is just replicating and not using part of the natural world because it's coming back to home. It's coming back to our place here, regardless of however we're putting into these solutions into the world, it all is part of the natural world. So some aspects will be using some pieces of nature like hemp. Others will be replicating the, uh, for example, spider mimicking process that creates natural silk fiber that's stronger than synthetics. You said something just a few minutes ago that, you know, I consider myself fairly versed on the English language and I've never heard that word before. And it, it was the the ingredient that this company is using. What what did you call it again? Which one are we talking about? Werewolf the the one before that. Uh the degumming process for Renaissance fiber. No, after the after that the <laughs> mic micro it was it was it was some some um um some product that they are using to make something else out of that hasn't been used before i guess um that's a great question i i we're gonna have to hit repeat on that yeah we will <laughs> <laughs> we will i'm sure it'll come up again uh, but it was it was a um they were using silicon or silicon that's it that's it oh yeah okay i have no so idea what that is never heard of it before what in the hello? hell is that so this is mycelium is actually it's the the vegetative filament root structure of mushrooms. I'll be still my foolish heart. You're kidding me. No. So uh, biome uses they actually they they use it the power of this root structure to grow their materials and they use organic and synthetic substrates that are also the byproducts or you know wastes of other industries. Um, so for example it mushrooms are our ultimate decomposers so we are working on one of the initiatives we're working on at the biomimicry institute is a concept called design for decomposition and we're first looking at fashion waste and how we think a lot of times like when we take things to goodwill we're doing our part but actually a lot of that um residual clothing and things if you've ever gone to the back of a goodwill there's just piles where they sell it and then they ship it or or they put it in the dumpster yes yes and that goes to the landfill right and so if they try to sell it and ship it it usually ends up in places like one of the one of the places is um accra ghana and so if you Google fashion waste in Accra, Ghana, it is, you can't unsee these images. Like there's just like, just miles of just like 
fashion waste everywhere. So one of the things that Biome is trying to do is let's say that there's this waste that's piled up here. They would be able to use mycelium using a biomimetic process that would essentially decompose this waste. And so through our initiative, we're looking at different kinds of solutions, different technologies of how to both take the waste that's already built up and get any of the nutrients we can out of it while also decomposing the rest of it so that we're not just building up a bunch of methane and waste in places that shouldn't be. And at the same time, part of this process is informing brands, designers, and saying, how is it that we can design not just the fashion industry, but like every industry to design for decomposition in the first place? So that when you are done with, I'm looking around because I'm seeing materials everywhere, everything from a desk, a computer, a clothing, all the things that we have in front of us. If we don't try and separate them completely into technological and biological nutrient loops, which let's be honest, is incredibly difficult to do because everything is interconnected. It's one thing to be able to recycle aluminum. And let's say that we're able to do this effectively. That's one material. Now you think about the giant mixture of materials that ends up in landfills, for example, it's going to be incredibly challenging. So one of the things that we learned from mycelium is that they're incredible decomposers, not only of waste, but somehow they're also able to aid in the filtering of things like phosphorus, which is really, or sulfur or nitrogen, that's really prevalent in like agricultural runoff, for example. There's so many biological champions is what we like to call them because they're amazing to learn from in the world that are solving the same kind of problems that we face. So in nature, there's no concept of waste. So how can we design everything to eliminate waste? Which would be a wonderful, wonderful goal, but I have to, I have to bring this up. I'm sorry. But when in a capitalist society, which is based upon money, mm-hmm. which is based upon making as much money as you can, mm-hmm. sometimes the bio uh, uh, processes are more expensive. And, uh, and so there are companies that will be resistant to change until they absolutely have to. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the oil and gas is a, is a great example. They are going to remain until biodegradable or bio uh, uh, energy becomes cheap and abundant and they cannot compete. Then you will see that they're going to drop oil and gas like a hot potato and they're going to pick up the, the cheaper thing because they can make more money from it. And are you guys, I know you're aware of it. Are you guys working on that angle of it too? Yes. Okay. So there's a few different things here. For one, that's a big deal. It is. Yeah. So on, on one side, we have to acknowledge that if it becomes cheaper first, absolutely. That's the solution that they're going to take. But let's be honest, we may run out by then and, or we get the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere so high to where it completely obliterates our ability to come back and stabilize our climate. Not to be (laughs) so dark, but let's, let's be honest here. Like this is kind of what we're working with in terms of incentive and motives, which is why I appreciate the question. 
Lex, 20 years ago, I would have people would have called that dark. <laughs> now, 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 in this day and age, realistic, realistically, when you look at the climate, when I, I'm 64 years old, I had never heard of a um, um, category four tornado in December going 140 miles a swath, almost two miles wide for 140 miles in December. Now, I've, it, that no, normally that happens in the spring if it's going to happen. So things are changing. And if yeah. they're not, if people are not recognizing that, they are living in the dark ages. So, yeah. so it's not dark. It's a matter of at this point in our in our world, it's reality. And if right. we don't stop it, if people like me don't give voice to people like you to stop this from happening, you're going to be my age and going. Well, I guess that was that, you know, because it's it's going to be it's going to be horrible. So it's not dark. It's real, and that's right. why this is so important. Yes. And, and it is something that I think, first of all, I really appreciate the platform that you offer for these kinds of conversations, because you're right, we have to talk about it and we have to get real about it. And at the same time, it's a lot of the people that aren't acting on it haven't been personally affected by it. And so they don't necessarily see the repercussions. So one of the things that we're trying to do is you know, from the sustainability movement, I personally think where we went a little off size in terms of activism is when we started leading by fear. And when, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, and you start seeing images of the starving polar bear, it's real, but it's not affecting people in their day-to-day -day lives. They didn't see that polar bear and think, oh, that's going to affect me in my neighborhood. And so it's part of a marketing conversation, which is unfortunate, but still true. And so when we come back and we look at that perspective of marketing solutions for a regenerative climate, we have to sit down at that CEO table. And I, I don't talk about how you're going to improve the environment for the organisms that live there. They don't care about that. What I talk about is how when we don't have ecosystems that function properly, we can't get those virgin materials anyway. We won't, we are running out of the materials that we need to use. We have this kind of scarcity mentality where ultimately biomimicry does have a triple bottom line effect. It has that benefit for people, planet, and the ability to have efficient income coming through to where you're saving money, you're saving time, you're saving all of these resources by looking at the process that you're doing it with. And this added benefit of conservation in a different kind of perspective, where if we lose entire ecosystems or we lose species that have been living in these ecosystems for hundreds of thousands of years, we're losing biological intelligence. We're, we're not just losing ecosystem services. We're losing the wisdom that they may have to offer us in solving some of the same challenges that they've already overcome, that we can learn from them and adapt them to whatever situation we need to find themselves in. And so while as much as I love oil and gas to go away, plastics to go away, it's not something that industry has necessarily stepped up to do. I mean, you can even look at the 
bottled water company. They're not selling water, they're selling plastic. And so if we're able to change our perspective and it has to come from multiple layers, from the consumer perspective, it's not all on us, like not trying to place blame on the consumer, but we have a voice and we have the power to be able to use our purchasing power for change and support products and services that may be expensive for some. And then others, there are alternative solutions to doing it. But that's our role that we need to play. Businesses need to play a role in actually making real change happen so that they are listening to their consumers and they are creating better effects on not just their output of what they're putting out into the world, but how they're sourcing materials, everything that goes into it. It's not just a, a greenwashing story. It is something that they can actually contribute to being better. And now employees joining, especially the younger working um, workers that are coming into the marketplace, like they want to support something that has purpose, that has good, because they know better now. So you're not only serving just, you know, yes, the environment, but you're attracting better talent because of these kinds of shifts. And we also need legislature. We need policy to change, to put the force on some of the people that are dragging their feet and that would rather prioritize a short-term paycheck than the benefit of their grandchildren having parks. And I, I actually hesitate sometimes to talk more about saving the future generation because we're losing aspects right now. We're not having the same access to nature. We're not having the same opportunities. People can't breathe the air in their neighborhoods there's lead in the water. These aren't distant challenges. Like we're facing them right now. And it behooves us to make these kinds of changes in a way that is incorporating the community. And you can make local changes and have global effects on it, but it really is going to take every single human to do the best that they can. And it starts with that awareness. And I'll tell you, we as human beings right now are operating at a very, very basic level. Uh, as an example, uh, when the pandemic came and everybody started, oh, the pandemic's here, the pandemic's here. What did we do? We went to the store and bought out toilet paper. I, I guess <laughs> if, if, if that's, a, that's apparently a, 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 where our basic needs are. But thing, things like, and you brought it up you, yourself, things like that we would consider not particularly relevant to our survival, but like a a bumblebee. If the bumblebees go away and they're in trouble at the, at the moment, if they if we don't take care of them and figure out a way to make them sustainable, we're not going to have any fruit to eat, mm-hmm. or we're not going to be able to cross pollinate and everything and yeah. or anything. Or and learn so, how they optimize space and materials in their designs. And and also to learn how they fly, which we haven't figured out to this day, how something that some a wing that they have uh, aerodynamically cannot support the weight that they're carrying, yet they do it. We could learn from that. Right. And and I think, you know, there's there's the instinct. Like, for example, you're saying like people went out and hit the stores because they were driven by fear and probably very misguided in some ways and selfish in others. We've also built a society that's based on this, this false 
reality that we're separate. And there's this thing that we lost of community and reliance on each other and this deep interconnectedness that we all are to each other. Yeah, That, that, that is, that is absolutely in my mind, if we could just understand and face the fact that we are all one, that we are all connected, that we all come from the same energy source. And, and it's not going to be that the good people who believe in this are going to survive and the bad people who believe in that are going to die. We're it's going to be indiscriminate and it's going to be difficult for all of us. And so we, we really, I, I really think that we all need to get into the, uh, have you ever heard the uh, uh, expression, get in the canoe and paddle like hell? We I haven't, but I resonate with it. We we all need to get into the canoe and paddle like hell in the same direction in order for us to reach where it becomes a sustainable thing. I have a three-year-old granddaughter. I want to see her grow up to be a beautiful young lady like you and a beautiful old lady like my mom who died at 90. Uh, that's what I want to see. And if we don't make changes, and we, we it, it's not going to happen. Right. So we have got to do, that's why I applaud what you're doing so much. And, uh, and you're, by the way, you're pretty smart. Did you know that? <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> you, mean, said, you said words. I had no idea what they meant. I have to look them up after the show. <laughs> I think, you know, there's, we're all trying to do the best that we can. And I personally, I suffered from years of climate grief once I finally learned what was happening and got a good grasp. And I tried to consume every bit of information that I could. And then it wasn't until I stumbled across this crazy term called biomimicry. I was like, oh, wait a second. I can have hope. I can, I can slow down and learn from the natural world, reconnect with the natural world. And let's be honest, there's countless studies that have not come out that just by being in a natural setting, your serotonin is boosted. You are able to regulate homeostasis. You're able to calm stressors. There's a reason why you go out into a forest and you feel so much differently than you're walking down the streets of Manhattan. It's completely physiological. And when we recognize that we are all imperfect animals here on this earth, we actually have something that we bond with. Wendell Berry said, you know, the earth is what we all have in common. And, and he was right in saying that ultimately this is our home. And it's not just about trying to protect our home. It's trying to see ourselves as one with our home and all of the beings that live in it and whether or not that's going to inspire people to go and take care of their elders as they should. Uh, but it's beyond that as well. It's now our community, which used to just be our tribes that we grew up around is now the whole globe because we have that access to information and technology. You can't unsee some of the things that are being spread around the world. And I'm very well aware that a different level of going back to basic human functioning is because we're all tired. We're all burnt out. You get this access to information in your pocket where you're inundated with all kinds of terrible news around the world in your community. You are being tailored and fed all this news. 
And we have to both recognize that we are sponges and we consume everything. And it's good to do an audit of what you are consuming because it's you. It's important to stay aware of the news. But if you're reading 10, 20 times a day about how the world is collapsing, you're going to be paralyzed by fear. And there's no acting from that. And so I try to maintain my balance by being aware of what's happening in the world, educating myself on the challenges, but recognizing my influence and being able to say what I love is talking about biomimicry. I love teaching and educating people about how we can find our place in this world by connecting with the natural world and learning from the natural world and empowering other people to try and take these kinds of questions into their own personal lives and in their industries. That's my intention. And my mission is to serve out of love. And the best way that I can do that is through the work that I do, but it's taken me a long time to get here. And so I hope that everyone can at least find that time to reconnect with themselves, reconnect with the natural world, and then figure out their sphere of influence and what kind of behaviors they can do on in their personal lives, in their homes, with their families. And then also try and ask the right kind of questions when they go back to industry. But knowing that if we don't slow down and we don't find that break, that rest, that pause to look around and see what we're really doing here and realize that we are all in this together. We're going to be racing toward the ends of our lives. And again, it'll be one of those situations where most people, you hear stories about people being on their deathbed. And the one thing that they're talking about is how they wish they would have connected more. They wish they would have been more to their people. And if there's all these wisdom coming out of people at that stage in their life, what can we learn from now while designing our lives in a way that is conducive to that interconnection to each other, to our communities, to the whole planet that we are so graciously able to rejoice on. And I got to tell you, <clears throat> from my perspective, I number one, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you're doing and I want to support it. I want to have you on on a regular basis to support it if you'll have me. Um, it would be, it would, that would be awesome, number one. Number two, the other thing that I need to do is to provide people with um, information like you're giving them so that they can reassess what they believe. Because at a fundamental level, we are going to have to change what some people believe to make it work for all of us. Because without all of us, it can't work for any of us. And so that's that's really is important for. So that's why it's important for me to bring people like you into this conversation and to keep it going. So well, now you're going to come back this Wednesday on KKNW 11:50 a.m. at four o'clock in the afternoon for Positive Talk Radio there. But more more than that, uh, Lex, I'd like to have you back on on a regular basis to give us updates more information so that we can spread this word of what you're trying to do. And I wholeheartedly support it. Thank uh, you, Kevin. It would be a pleasure. <laughs> I can't see anything. I can't see any downside um, because at the end of the day, on my last day on this planet, I want to be able to say, well, I did what I could. 
I love that. Yes, absolutely. And it is, you're right. We're shifting perspectives here and you can't shift a perspective unless you are aware. And so I would love to keep the conversation going with you. I think being able to talk about some of the real examples going on in the world. I mean, we have our youth design challenge that are actually submissions are due at the end of this week. And in May, we're going to be talking about middle and high school students coming up with the the coolest concepts. I mean, from reducing drag uh, from fro frost that builds up on wind turbine blades to maple seed inspired devices created by a middle school team that combats deforestation. And there's so many very cool examples coming up with youth that are going to inspire us to do better ourselves. Well, and this is, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If this is politically incorrect, but uh, there is a reason why people get old and die is to make room for youth and new minds, new ideas, new thoughts that the old people because they've always done it this way. Well, we're not going to do it. We've always done it this way. And so it's important that we continue to evolve if we if we choose to stay on this planet, if we choose to make it a livable place and return to what nature can be. And you're right. Going out, I, I would love for somebody that's in the audience, next time you are in a forced setting and you're you're out in the, in nature, I want you to walk up to a, a good-sized tree and just put your hands on it and just be for a moment. What you will feel is the vibration of life coming from that tree. It is not a dead thing. It is part of the ecosystem, and it is very much alive. And we need to treat it as such because and be stewards of it. And if... And, I don't care what your religious philosophy is. If you're a Christian, Jesus said, be a good steward to the environment, period. He didn't say, unless there's no money in it. He said, be a good steward. So that's what, that's what we are tasked to do. And I'm so glad that you guys are taking modern science and applying it to age-old thinking to put them together so that we can return to a natural state of living. Is that what you guys are about really? Yes, we are putting the we're putting nature back into human nature. And this is all about reciprocity. See, and that's what kills me is that there are people that don't believe that we are connected to nature. It's like, really? <laughs> how can you how can you not how can you make that distinction that we are either above it or we're different? We are part of the planet. We are part of the indigenous species that are here. And we, and, but, but we've been given, given a brain and we've been given a, a, a consciousness so that we can be stewards and protect the rest of the planet. And I believe that that's one of our biggest missions in life. Yes, I agree. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now because we got to go. But I, I got to tell you this I want to, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to tell our audience that's listening now and that which will be listening in the future, anything that you would like them to know. Oh, well, thank you. First of all, I empower you to go outside. Truly. I know we've said it a lot already on this conversation, but find, find your place outside. And if you're curious about learning more about biomimicry, visit biomimicry.org. There is an activity there, 30 days of reconnection that anyone can start 
anytime. Earth Day is coming up. It's a great time to start it. If you have the luxury of being able to be outside, then that's it's got some activities for you to take out there with you. If you are um, at home, there are, I actually we designed it uh, during when COVID first started. So there's plenty of videos and activities that make it both adaptable for outside and indoors, so that you can still get that kind of education and that connection. And Ask Nature, asknature.org is a place to go and learn, study, be inspired. There's thousands of biological strategies on there that you can learn uh, from different organisms in your community or just, you know, across the world. And there's other kinds of innovations in there. If you want to see like what kind of examples and case studies uh, exist in the world, asknature.org is a great place for that. And overall, uh, we've got different kinds of initiatives that I know Kevin and I are going to dig into in the weeks to come. So if you have any curiosity that has been sparked, follow us, uh, connect with us um, over social media platforms, and we hope to be able to see you getting out into nature and sharing your stories. Send us some photos and how you're learning from the natural world and your community. That is a really, really good idea. So if you if you want to um, if you want to comment on this, you can send something to Kevin at kmedia.pro. That's Kevin at kmedia.pro, and uh, I will get to put you in contact with with Lex, or or we'll try and answer your question and um, and all of that. It's it's this is this also, is important. On that note, Kevin, if anyone has questions specific to biomimicry or even solving sustainability problems and you want to hear about it as we continue the conversation on upcoming shows, that'd be another great thing to send over to Kevin. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 anything that you would like to know about, we'll we'll try and get you the best answer that we can because this is um I don't know about you, but this is the defining subject of our lifetime yes absolutely agree and there's no better time than now for us to start having this kinds of conversations in a really deep way and one of the things that kevin i know we've talked behind the scenes on is no more lectures no more sitting and staring at a screen we want organic conversations we want real human interaction here so that's what we're trying to bring is to talk about the issues talk about them from a very human dialogue even though some of the jargon it does it fills my repertoire i apologize in advance and also am excited to continue talking as human to human that's all that's at the end of the day that's all we've got and, and to take care of each other that's that's all there is and uh, i really appreciate you being here lex and lexa moore has been our guest biomimicry institute is the company is actually it's more than that it is a, a new direction that we need to take. By the way, you'd be proud of me. We're going to have a guy who's going to tell us how to eat bugs here in the next couple of weeks. Very cool. And, uh, <laughs> he does. He does. Uh, um, um, cricket he, farming. Cricket farming. Yes. And did you know? I had no idea that cricket poop makes the best fertilizer in the world. I had no earthly idea. I asked him how they they uh, farm it. And, uh, and he goes through that, and we'll talk about that on his show. But uh, um, that's just a teaser for uh, learn how to uh, farm cricket poop. So, the more anyway. you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, and thank you, my dear. I've got another, I've got to run to do another show, but I, I'm so busy. But I, I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate your smile, your, 
and what you're doing for the world. And uh, I'm going to see you on Wednesday on KKNW at 4 yes. o'clock Pacific. That's 11.50 a.m. And go to 11.50 uh, KKNW and you can stream it anywhere in the world. So you stay right where you're at. I'll be right back. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of KMmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named KMmedia.pro for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time.